Father, thank you for this day, and we lift it up to you. Uh, we thank you that through your amazing grace we were saved. and We were once broken vessels, but now we are part of your kingdom, and that we can call you Lord, and that you are our King. And Lord, as we go through this sermon, let us understand how we can understand your word, and let us understand how we are to respond to, to preaching. And Lord, let us live as the church. Give us your Holy Spirit for understanding today, and let your word speak loudly, and let mine be quiet. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through this series called Living as the Church, and living as the church is, is being rooted in the inerrant word of God. And this week we're going to talk about preaching. And I should be able to preach about preaching, but it's not as easy as it sounds. I mean, how do you teach something that most of us only listen to and never actually get up here and do? But I believe that's not the way we should look at it. I believe that's not the way we should look at a sermon on preaching. 2 Timothy 1, 4, 1-2 says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is a call from, from Paul to Timothy. But I also believe that this is a, a call to every preacher throughout time. And not everybody is called to be a preacher. However, I believe that, believe that every one of us should proclaim or, or herald the Word of God in some fashion, even if you never step foot in a pulpit. But there is an important part about this, and, and that is your response when somebody preaches. You see, preaching is pointless if there is not a response by you. What happens to you when someone is up here and they are preaching a sermon? And sometimes I feel bad that I stand up here and I, I call you black-hearted, wretched sinners. But honestly, it's my job. I mean, you guys actually pay me to say these things. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, and they will have itchy ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. My job is to speak truth whether you like it or not. It's not my job to tickle your ears, whether in information or the way I speak. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of elegant wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now I understand, if somebody is boring up here and you're going to fall asleep, maybe God has not called them to preach. And then I saw this quote the other day by Leonard Ravenhill, who was an evangelist and a book writer in the 1900s. He's from England. And he said, preaching is not a profession, it's a passion. If a man can't preach with passion, he shouldn't preach at all. You see, I believe that it is the passion for Jesus that people respond to more than the elegance of the preacher's words and his voice. And as preachers, we have this obligation to preach and to teach and to reprove, rebuke and exhort the congregation while having complete patience. I think that last part is the most difficult, but also maybe the most important. As I start thinking about this sermon, I start thinking about it. What if I stood up here 
And everyone as you left started thinking this about yourself. I'm awesome. Man, I'm the perfect believer. I might as well be Christ. I'm not doing my job if that's the case. I mean, you might have great self-esteem when you leave, but it does nothing to change who you are. It does nothing to drive you closer to Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. There must be wins and losses. And that's exactly how God works. He works in blessings and, and struggles to mature us closer to Jesus. That's exactly how God works. But I must speak the truth. And preaching must be the truth. And preaching is more than just sounding smart. I've often heard people say that, that the preacher is not feeding me. Now, I've yet to hear that, and I've yet to hear that somebody in this congregation said that to Pastor Bill. And so if you're thinking that, then you're keeping it really quiet, and I appreciate it. But I did hear that said when Pastor Steve was our pastor during that time when we split. And I started to think, I mean, we all feed ourselves regularly with, with real food when we're about one years old. I think we should feed ourselves with spiritual food fairly soon after we are saved. A mature believer is somebody that's able to take every sermon. And maybe there's just one little thing that we learn that brings us closer to Jesus. Even if it's just half a percent that day as you grow and mature in Christ. And Pastor Bill and I, we study hard each week and and we could study hard just to bring you this special nugget of information that makes you feel like you are smart and that you are maturing in the world. And quite frankly, it might make us look smart, but to be honest with you, I don't care about knowledge if it doesn't lead to action. Knowledge without action is selfishness, and, and, and action without knowledge is chaos. And our God is not about chaos. We must be about knowledge and action. And preaching is where we gain this knowledge. But it also must be a call to action. I think that's why I so often stand up here and I pretend like I'm William Wallace and I'm trying to wield this, this sword with my voice. Trying to inspire people to go and have action in their lives. And I understand preaching is extremely important. It's, it's a huge part of being a Christian and being a Christ follower. But if it is the only interaction you have with the Bible during the week, then we're not living as the church. So today, so today I'm going to go through some te techniques that I use to preach a sermon. And my desire is that you use these techniques to begin to feed yourself. My desire is that you take them to your daily Bible studies. But on top of that, I'm going to challenge you guys. I'm going to challenge you to write a sermon of your own. And then not just keep it to yourself, but let somebody read it. You see, I, the year was 2014. It was during the summer. And, the, and I could feel something inside of me. I had like this passion, this fire, and I couldn't explain it. And I just felt like I had to stand up here and preach a sermon. And I went to Pastor Steve with it, and I told him, and Pastor Steve didn't tell me just to, to ignore that. He said, I want you to write a sermon, because my father is sick right now. And I'll look it over, and we'll talk about it some, and, and we'll go over it together. And then I want you to, to take that sermon, I want you to set it to the side, and I want you to wait, and I'm going to call you. It might be Saturday night when I call you, but when my father passes away, you're going to preach 
that sermon that day. And I still remember that day as I stood up here and I preached that sermon and something happened inside of me. And and it happened to be a a wonderful day on my part, but a terrible day because Pastor Steve was leaving. But Pastor Steve being, being willing to speak in my life and to challenge me in that quite frankly, changed my life. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that. And I hope as you write that sermon, that it helps you have the tools to study the Bible. That would be huge. And maybe discover something that you don't know about yourself. And you see, we we teach when we preach, but teaching is not necessarily preaching. I'm going to break this down like a teacher. You might as well call me Professor Zach. And then I'm going to proclaim it as I finish. In this church, we hold to a hermeneutic, a big word that's based on three things. Number one, a common sense literal interpretation of the Bible, which also understands that there are symbolic parts of the Bible. For example, when the Bible says that that God owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills... We can assume that God owns more than a thousand hills. We understand that that 1,000 is symbolizing everything, everything God owns. Or when the Bible says that Samson killed a thousand dudes with a jawbone of a donkey, we can assume that he did not kill every man. We can assume that he killed somewhere in the ballpark of a thousand men. And then in Daniel 7, when he says the four winds of heaven were stirred up, We know that this text, because we read on, is talking about these Gentile nations. And then he says it, it stirred up the great sea. He's not talking about a hurricane here. He's talking about these same Gentile nations on the earth. We must continually use our Bible and use common sense, which is kind of lost right now. But I challenge us as the church to be different. And then number two. We believe that the Bible must be understood first with the original intent of the writers. We must understand that first before we can apply it to today's standards. And we also must be careful not to trust just one source, but to check multiple sources as we try to discover what this historical accuracy of the Bible is. For instance, many of you have heard when you Hear the text, uh, Jesus' parable, when he says that a camel can go through the, can't go through the eye of a needle, right? And some of you have heard that this narrow or this short gateway into Jerusalem where a camel must unload its pack or its cargo to get through. And they'll tell you that it symbolizes us getting rid of the baggage so that we can get into heaven. And Okay, I understand, but do we really ever get rid of all our baggage? Not really. Man, it's about Jesus. And the problem is that there's no proof that this gate even existed and it doesn't harmonize with the rest of the Bible. Jesus is saying right here in these words that it is impossible to get into heaven without divine intervention. And that harmonizes with the Bible. And we want people that are not strayed by every new thought but but continually use the Bible to proof check itself and, and other people's teaching, including mine and Pastor Bill's. And then number three, we believe the Bible interprets the Bible. The Bible is the greatest commentary. And we spend hours trying to rightly interpret what the Bible is saying. So this is how we do it. We start by prayerfully considering the text. And then we observe the text 
Then we interpret the text. Then we apply the text. And then we communicate the text. It's about the text, if you didn't notice. And it's not about us. So the first thing we do is is we prayerfully pick it. That's why we spend so much time in one book, because it's really difficult to try to figure out where the Holy Spirit is leading the congregation. I mean, if it was up to me, we would probably preach Romans 8 every single Sunday. In this church, this church will always expositionally preach. You'll hear this word expository and and this other word exegesis. And basically, exegesis is to analyze the text, which is the first part of expositional preaching. We study the language, the grammar, and this historical background to understand the Scripture better. An expository or expositional preaching is to take what we learn from the text and then relay it to you so that it has meaning. And then it should drive this action in your life as you respond to it. So the preacher. The preacher is to study the text. And he's to try to come up with a way so that you can understand it. So if I start using words like hermeneutics without explaining it, I'm not doing my job. And hermeneutics is basically the art and science of biblical interpretation. Then there's this other type of preaching called topical. Where I pick this topic like the church or prayer or preaching the word. And then I search for the text to make my point. We as a church, we believe in expository preaching. We should not avoid text. We should tackle even the hardest text, even the hardest verses as we go through any book in the Bible. And you may be asking yourself, are you not topically preaching right now? In a way. In a way I am, but we take this topical idea. And then we find the text that conveys it. And then we start with the text, not our ideas. Our job is to take the Scripture and then unpack it and to discover what it is saying. And so once I've unpacked this text, I move on to this observation. And as I'm going to observe the text, I read the text multiple times. I read the chapter multiple times. And then sometimes I'll read the entire book. And I read this entire book and, and I need this context to understand exactly what it's saying. And the more I do this, the more I understand the, the concepts of each of the books that are in the Bible. And so I figured if we're going to look at a sermon, we might as well look at the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so what I do next, I copy and paste it into Word and then I triple space it so I have a ton of space. And then I I print it out and I start to mark it up and I write down ideas. And I want you to remember that there are no bad ideas or or questions yet. Just ideas and questions that we, we need to research. So turn with me to Matthew 5. Starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So I do eight things when I'm marking up the text. And so you can follow along with me. I figured it would be very hard for you to to understand what I did when I mark it up. So I really simplified it for you up on the board. So number one, I start by circling words or, or phrases that are the same. And it's easy to see that this word blessed is repeated. And it's repeated nine times from verse 3 to 11. So I put a little question mark there. Obviously, God is trying to to tell me something that I need to research. 
And then number two, I look for comparisons. I mean, sometimes it's easy to see, and other times it can be very difficult. And you notice up there that the, the kingdom of heaven and, and comforted are circled. And as I started to, to look at the text, I started to see how every one of these related to this kingdom of Jesus, this kingdom of heaven. And then I saw these words that started to describe it. And then I looked at this comparison between poor in spirit and mourning, and I recognized that they were linked together. And then I go on. Number three, I start to look for things that are contrasting, which is not obvious here especially, but I started to see as I contrasted these words that, that God was contrasting the ways of God with the, with the ways of the world. And so number four, I start to make a list. And in my list, the first part was, was God's ways. We are to be poor in spirit. We are to be mourners. We are to be meek. We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are to be pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted. And what comes from that but, but heaven? And, and comfort and inheritance and, and satisfaction and mercy and, the, and to see God. And then we're sons of God. And then heaven again. And this correlates to this forever time with God. And these eternal rewards. And then I make a second list of the things of the world that, that contrast. The things that start with this rich in the world. Happy with our sinful selves. Ag- aggressive or arrogant. Full, deceitful. Whatever it takes to get on top. An arguer. The, somebody that wears you down. Commended. Must be respected. And this correlates to this temporary power and these finite rewards. And then number five, this leads me to the cause and effect. If I am poor in spirit, I will have access to the kingdom of heaven. And this list helps me see these things. And then number six, conjunctions. These words, and, but, for, therefore, you see them often. And often we just glance by them, but they're leading us to something else that we need to understand these words connect us back to something. And you'll see at the very beginning in verse 1, this, this scene, the crowds. And I know it's not exactly a conjunction, but, but what crowds are he ta- is he talking about? And then number 7, I look for the verbs. They can be active, passive, or imperatives. Now, I am no English teacher, that is for sure. But I believe that this word blessed in this text is a passive verb. But I also saw some active verbs that looked very similar. Psalm 119, 1-2. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And then verse 2. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. So you could write it like this. Those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, are blessed. We are blessed because we did something. These people are walking. And in verse 2, they're, they're seeking it. But in verse 3 and 4, it's passive. If you are a believer, man, you are this person. You are poor in spirit. You are a mourner. You did not do anything to become them. It comes from this relationship with Jesus. Jesus caused the action. Jesus is the cause. The poor in spirit are blessed because theirs is from Jesus. And then number eight, I look and I put the pronouns into the text. 
Jesus went up on the mountain, and when Jesus sat down, Jesus' disciples came to Jesus, and Jesus opened Jesus' mouth and taught the disciples slash crowd, saying, You notice here that I'm not exactly sure who is talking. I mean, it's mentioned these crowds, and it's mentioned the disciples, and I'll, I'll put a question mark here. Maybe I need to go back to this, but sometimes in my research, it doesn't necessarily matter for this particular sermon. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter for others, but if... But if I'm looking for how Jesus is talking to all believers, who are always talking to all people, then this really is a, a minute point. But if I'm looking at how Jesus was talking to just His disciples, then this is really, really important. I really want us as a church to get to the main point, to not detour on these, these little things. We get caught up in the little things that, that aren't necessarily helping us grow in Christ. In all of this, I try really hard not to interpret things yet. Because I'm going to go on to this next step. And interpretation, it requires a good resource. And I have this computer program called Lagos. Man, it is awesome. When I scroll over things, it gives me the Greek and the Hebrew word. It opens up my favorite commentary so I can read it. I mean, it is some great software. But if you don't have this, get yourself a dictionary, a, a Strong's Concordance and a trusted commentary, and then a, a good study Bible. I mean, these tools can really help you do some good work in the Bible. And then on top of it, I use this tool that I am not sure how people preached before it came around. I'm so thankful that Al Gore invented it. It's called the Internet. Now, please be careful. I'm a professional. But I cannot tell you how many times... I can't tell you how many times that I can only remember part of a verse and Google gives me the rest. Or I can't remember where a verse is and, and Google gives me the location. I mean, Google, when it comes to preaching, is one of my best friends. Or maybe DuckDuckGo if you're paranoid or something, but what I'm really asking us is to be careful. To only use trusted sources. And one of my favorites is gotquestions.org. I love that one. And I've studied things and I've been doing this for some time. So I understand that this genre is, is gospel. But if you don't understand it, a quick search on the internet is going to tell you that in a second. And I also understand that the different gospels in the Bible were written for different audiences. But if you don't understand that, I'm telling you that a Google search will tell you in no time at all. But for instance, when I read Luke's gospel, I can clearly see that it was written for a Gentile audience. And when I read Matthew's Gospel, it's clearly written for a Hebrew or a Jewish audience. And he wants readers to understand that, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the new Abraham and the new Moses. He relates to Jesus in a way that his audience would understand. They understand Moses. So Matthew 5.1, see in the crowds, Jesus, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. This phrase, He went up on the mountain, relates back to Moses' day. And Moses, He told the people to stay as He went up to God, but Jesus, He's calling the people to Him. Exodus 19.3, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to Him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say, yet thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. Moses, he lays out this old covenant. And Jesus, he is laying out the new covenant. 
And honestly, as you go through this sermon, Jesus' ways are greater. They do not lessen the law at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Holding to Jesus' ways are harder. They are impossible. But we have Jesus. And Jesus, He declares us innocent. And we come to Him first. And then He cleans us up. And if we are not careful as a church, we will trade out the laws of Moses for the Sermon on the Mount and miss Jesus in the process. Man, if we are going to live as the church, we must not trade out. Jesus is the reason. Jesus is the reason that we are these Beatitudes. And I've, I've, I've seen you guys. Man, I've seen myself. I cannot live up to what Jesus says in this sermon. Man, I am hosed if it were not for Jesus. I'm hosed. As I look at this text, I start to see this background. And I use one of my trusted commentaries to get this information, but I challenge you not to read your commentary first. If you do that, it will change the way that you're looking at the text. Use the commentary after you've interpreted the text, after you've let the Holy Spirit work in your life. And then use it to get some of the background. Some of these things that you have no way of knowing. And then after I do that, I start to break down these words. What does blessed mean? And sometimes it's simple. It can mean happiness or joy in this world. But we know that biblical joy and happiness are based in Jesus and not our happenings. And then what does poor in spirit mean? This one's a little confusing, but I love how GotQuestions.org explained it. Poor in spirit is to be understood that we are spiritually bankrupt and we have nothing, absolutely nothing to offer God. And then what does mourn mean in this context? And normally we don't associate mourning with being blessed or or happy or joyful, but when we grieve over our sin and understand that we are black-hearted, It is one of the first steps to understand our need for a Savior who will come and comfort us. Jesus is the comforter. So let's read the rest of the text. And you should see a pattern here. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons, shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And number 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So go back up to five. What is meek? And I don't think we have to go too deep here. My dictionary tells me that it means gentle or, or mild or humble. And a lot of times us men, we have a hard time with that. But, but I truly believe that's what God is calling us to be. And then what is merciful? Merciful is not receiving this punishment that you deserve. But we give forgiveness and mercy to others because we have received forgiveness and mercy from Jesus. And then what is this pure in heart? It's, is your heart unstained? It is if you have Jesus. I mean, my heart is nowhere unstained without Jesus. And that's how God sees me. Through the lens of Jesus Christ. 
However, I'd like to skip ahead a little bit and take some application from this as we talk about this peacemaker. I mean, there's truly only one peacemaker, and that's Jesus. But I ask you, do you you try hard to keep peace as much as up to you? Or are you a fight starter? This peacemaker does not mean passive. It relates back to this pure of heart. What is your heart in the matter? Is it for Jesus as you try to, to make peace? Biblical peace is not just this absence of war. It has this meaning of totally complete. It has this meaning of harmony. Are you still holding on to some things? And if you are, that's not peace. And then persecution. I'm not sure we completely understand it, but over the last few months, it seems like we're getting closer to understanding what the writers were talking about. And then we see this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And we should understand this as the realm where God dwells. It is eternally good, holy, righteous, everything morally good as opposed to this world at this moment. It is the world that Jesus provides through salvation. Now I understand there will be a day when the kingdom of heaven will consume this world and and thy kingdom will come. And as I started to look at this text, it started to make sense to me. I mean, some pastors will deal with these as, as each separate. And they, but I really wanted to today to work with them as something that's together. There's not some of you that are poor in spirit and some of you who mourn and some of you get the kingdom of heaven and some of you will be comforted and some of you are just out of luck. No, when we have Jesus. When we have Jesus, we have all of these things. All of these are found in Jesus and nobody else. So what does this mean for us? Basically, it means your host. Without Jesus, of course. I mean, none of us can live up to these standards that Jesus has set, except maybe Susan Wortham and and Liz Beyer. I'm joking, but, but we really do have some special ladies in here. I do know for a fact that none of us dudes can live up to these standards. But the ladies in here, and some guys, I guess, but... What makes them special is that they're willing to give Jesus the credit first. Jesus is the reason that they are the person that they are. And Jesus, He lays out this new covenant. It is based on a relationship with Jesus. It is this relationship with Jesus that makes you poor in spirit and gives you this access to the kingdom of heaven. It is this relationship that causes you to mourn your sin and gives you comfort in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but meekness in my life? Man, just the other day, my kids are arguing in the truck as we're going to school, and they're screaming and yelling at each other, and I just yell at the top of my lungs, Stop yelling! And then I shout, Relax! I'm pretty sure they'll never understand what that means. They don't. I mean, my my daughter this morning is screaming at Eileen. Man. But Jesus... Jesus, He perfectly lives out meekness. And with Jesus, I will have an inheritance when I deserve nothing. And then this hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I know some of you, you long for the Word, but honestly, I don't even like to read. I am so grateful for Jesus because there is not a lot of righteousness in here. The fact that I can even study and and read the Word of God is a testament to the power of Jesus Christ. 
and then merciful. Man, there's not a lot of this going on in the world today. But as the church, I, I plead with us to be different. And then pure in heart. Pure in heart? Seriously, no way am I pure in heart. But then I read about Jesus and I see this compassion for women. This compassion for the sick and those that are dead. This compassion for you and I as He redeems us on the cross. I mean, that is pure in heart. And we get to see God through Jesus. And then peacemakers. I know I jumped the gun on that. Man, we have no idea. So when you guys are putting together your sermon, if you can, you can discover this one, please let me know. But I can tell you that Jesus has this one covered. And when I read the final book in the Bible, the Revelation, some people are going to get theirs. And I can tell you that I want to be on Jesus' side and I want to help this, the more people, the better, be on that side also. And then once again, he continually reminds us, it seems like every sermon that I preach, that persecution is part of the gig. But so often, he doesn't leave it at that. He says, rejoice in it. And I don't know about you, but I have a hard time figuring out how to rejoice in it. I'm still learning and maturing and discovering how to do it. So what is the reward? Jesus is the reward. Heaven is the reward. The prophets before you, they understood that, and, and so should we. Man, we are terrible at each of these things that Jesus lays out, but Jesus is perfect at them. So how do I represent this to you? Where does this change from a, from a teaching lesson, from a, from a school classroom, to a Sunday morning worship service and a proclamation? Where does it go from lecture to, to preaching? And I don't have to go further than Jesus. Jesus gives us the answer in the next verse. I mean, He is the teacher. He's teaching us how we are to be because of Him. And then He proclaims what it looks like. How we are to respond when we hear the preaching. When we hear this preaching because Jesus has done everything. Because He has transformed you to the person that is set apart in this world. You are to be able to do what? Matthew 5, 13-15 You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but, but they put it on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. So often we forget that we are no longer in bondage, but we are in the ways of Jesus. We are free in Jesus. We are no longer searching for the what's in this world, the what's that will make us happy, but we have found the who that completes us and transforms us. Are you the salt of the earth? Do you preserve the ways of God? I mean, when everything is broken down, are you steadfast in Jesus? Or do you get caught up in the ways of this world? This being rich or happy or aggressive or full or getting yours or arguing about everything and demanding respect. Man, forever. 
And especially right now for you believers, we have to display Jesus Christ. Jesus is the standard that we live by. And even though His standard seems impossible, we should strive to be like Jesus. Not because it saves us, but because we love Him. Man, don't be ashamed of your faith. Let your light shine and let your life be a preservative to this rotting world. Man, please don't lose your saltiness. Please do not let your light be hidden because we have Jesus and we are His and He makes us these beatitudes. That's what's important. That's what's so important. And He calls us to be a light and salt. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You that we get to study it and we almost get to taste it and, and devour it and, and learn so much from it. And even when people like me don't like to read, it just penetrates my soul. And I want so desperately to be like Jesus. I thank You for Your sacrifice, for Your compassion for your willingness to die on the cross for my sins. And, and we as a church, we come to you humbly. Because we're not worthy to even be in your presence, but yet, because of your work, we can. And, and God sees us pure in heart. Lord, we thank you. And we just lift this day up to you. And we ask that we will continually focus on your word, that we will be rooted in it, and that we will learn to respond to preaching. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.